Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. And welcome to season one, episode one of the StoryGrid Writer's Room podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor and a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor too, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. This week, to kick off this brand new show, we're going to look at the lover's meet scene from Bridget Jones's diary. And of course, this is by the wonderful Helen Fielding. Now, we are looking at the novel, not the film. I know in Level Up Your Craft, Sean focuses more on the film just because it's easier to watch and rewatch a film over the course of time to learn the lessons. And he's focusing on the macro view of story, so no problem. Here we're looking at the micro scene level view. So we wanted to really focus on the novel. And of course, the lover's meat scene is the amazing turkey curry buffet scene on New Year's Day. (laughs) And remember, the reason we're focusing on scenes here is because if you can write a scene that works, you can write a novel that works. If your scenes aren't working, your novel isn't working. So it's really important for us to crack away at those scenes. All right, just as we did in the Roundtable podcast, we're going to start with a brief summary of the three-act structure of the story, and I'm going to have to read this for those of you watching on YouTube. Here it goes. Bridget Jones's Diary is a courtship love story, as we know, and in the beginning hook, Bridget is in search of a romantic relationship. She meets Mark Darcy at a New Year's Day turkey curry buffet, but she doesn't think too much of him, and he doesn't think too much of her either. She goes on a date with her boss, Daniel Cleaver, and they have sex. And while it's a one-night stand for him, Bridget thinks it's a much more serious relationship, and she writes in her diary that she loves him. Poor Bridget. In the middle build, Mark Darcy returns briefly, but he and Bridget still don't get on, as far as she's concerned anyway. Bridget continues her ill-fated relationship with Daniel, until she discovers that he's been having an affair. (laughs) Daniel confesses that he's engaged to the woman whose name is Suki and breaks things off with Bridget. Now in the ending payoff, this is when Bridget leaves her job at the publishing company and begins a new career at a television studio. Her relationship with Mark Darcy finally kicks into gear. They go on a date, he grants her an exclusive interview with his client, and when her mother becomes involved in a fraud scandal, Mark Darcy saves the day. The novel ends much as it began with a holiday party, only this time, rather than snub Bridget, Mark takes her out for Christmas Day brunch. Alrighty, let's just jump right into the scene analysis and we're gonna start with a look at the scene type. Now, Leslie, 
we're trying to figure out even how to study scene types, right? So we've come up with a list of questions, a list of things that we want to try and figure out about the scene types. And the first one is, what function does the scene serve in the story? Do you want to take us through that? Sure. So this is the lovers meet scene or obligatory moment. And this is what kicks off the action in the story. And, and so it's really important. The cool thing though, that I like to know about this scene is that it also establishes several of the conventions of the love story. We get the setting, we get the location, we get to know the period, but also we get a hint about the duration because this is her diary and she is tracking her New Year's resolution. So we know it's going to be about a year. We meet some of the main characters and of course the true force of antagonism, Bridget's failure to respect herself. It's present on the scene and we see it operating. She is her own worst enemy, really. Yeah. Now you mentioned a couple of things there that I want to draw attention to. You mentioned that the scene tells us where we are in space and time. It, it tells you what kind of a scene it is. These are all things that you and I are looking at as we analyze scenes and as we try and figure out how, do this, how does the scene type thing work? How can we, like we don't even have big buckets of categories to put these scene types in yet. So I mean, this is all stuff we're figuring out. So we need to figure out what kind of scene it is. It's a party scene, as you've already said. Um, what does the scene type accomplish within, within the context of the novel as a whole? And why would Helen Fielding choose to use a party scene for this? I mean, this is the stuff that we really got to get into here. Because when we're writing a novel or a short story or whatever it is we're writing, we usually have a pretty good sense of what the scene needs to accomplish or what it has to do with the main plot of the story. But we need to figure out how, what kind of scene can we create to make that happen? Like for example, some of the things that we've already uncovered um, and a hat tip to Anne here because she's the one who said this to me first and, and connected the dots in my own mind. If we have a scene where, um, like the opening scene in The Accidental Tourist, where Macon and Sarah are in a car together. Well, Sarah is a captive audience. She's completely disempowered in that scene. So having two people in a car where the person who is driving is the more powerful one and, and has to have some sort of sway or influence over the other person, it's perfect because you can't get out of a moving car, right? You're a captive audience. So when you have someone who needs to give that kind of a news, perhaps having them in a car might be a good way of going about it, especially if in your story, you need to move the characters from point A to point B, right? Because a conversation can be happening while they're traveling. I have a couple of ideas, Leslie, as to why Helen Fielding would have chosen a party scene for this, but I'd like to hear your thoughts first. Well, for me, the it's part part of it is establishing the conventions of the genre and establishing the setting. We need to know who are the people in her in Bridget's life, 
and who are the potential helpers, who are the harmers, you know, who's going to help her gain the respect she needs so that she can be available for a, a loving commitment. And so we get all of those people and forces operating in one place. And it's perfect because really this scene, if we talk about the in and the out that Stephen Pressfield talks about, that opening scene and the very closing scene should tell the story in, in a mini form. And they do. Everything that she has to deal with is on the page here. It's really well done. It also sets up Bridget as her own worst enemy. It, it shows us the type of societal pressure that she is under. And society is an antagonist here in this story, absolutely. And we see that in the form of her mother, uh, Una Alkenberry, uh, Uncle Jeffrey. Her dad is on her side, right. but everyone else pretty much is giving her heck for not already being married with a family or not having a top job. As I was rereading this novel in preparation for today, there are so many references to someone being a top barrister or having a top job in this field or that field. And Bridget doesn't have that, right? She's, she's got a job and it's a pretty good job, but it's not a top job. And then she switches careers and goes into television and it's still not a top job. <laughs> right? So yeah. she's got it coming at her every which way. The other reason I think that Helen Fielding used this, because this clearly is a reinvention, a reinterpretation, a modernization of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And where do Darcy and Elizabeth meet in Pride and Prejudice? At the Netherfield Ball. I'm going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But, it, you know, it worked then. And it works now. <laughs> Helen Fielding did not need to reinvent the wheel here. And she's a, you know, we talked a little bit before we started to record here that Bridget Jones's diary, perhaps as far as we're concerned, it hasn't aged as well as we might have liked it to. But Helen Fielding's craft is really good here. This woman knows how to write. You know, so she saw the Netherfield Ball and how, how that scene type, how a ball functions in a story and the types of things it brings out, and it works just as well today. So she updated it. And instead of the Netherfield Ball, it's a turkey curry buffet, which is really funny, <laughs> right? And, and that's just the genius of it. So when you're studying a masterwork or you're studying someone else's writing, as writers ourselves, as, as students learning how to do this, these are the types of questions we've got to start asking ourselves. Why did this author make this choice? Is it working? Is it not working? Because you can learn just as much from the ones that aren't working, frankly. Uh, here, I think it works great. What else, uh, what else do you have to say about the scene types? Well, one thing I want to say about scene types just generally is that the one of the reasons we study them is that we need ways to fulfill what Sean calls the editor's scene types. So we have these obligatory moments that we need to have in, in a, a, a love story, in a crime story, in a society story, but we can't just do it the same way every time. 
And so how do you, the scene type is, answers the question, how are you going to fulfill that requirement? And so, like you said, here we have this party scene. It's wonderful because we get all the players together, the conflict is there, and it provides multiple layers or levels of conflict. It's just, you know, it's a fluffy story, (laughs) you know, to be honest. And stories like this aren't ones that I am eager to read all the time. And it would be really easy to miss the fact that Helen Fielding is a consummate professional, right? It's, it's not highbrow literature, but the fundamentals are all there and deep respect. And if you're going to do comedy, you've got to have the fundamentals in place because comedy especially will just do a face plant if the fundamentals aren't in place. And you mentioned something there I want to pick up on. You talked about the editor's scene types. And perhaps we should have talked about this right off the top. There are editor's scene types and writer's scene types. So the editor's scene types would be uh, things like the lovers meet, the obligatory moments, things that need to happen in a story to fulfill the requirements of the genre and the reader's requirements, the things that they expect to see when they pick up a love story or a crime story or a thriller or a horror, whatever. That's great. And we need to know that. But as a writer, the question that we have is how do we write a lover's meet scene? Like, what does that look like? Where, where will they be? Okay, they're going to be at a turkey curry buffet. Why would they be there? So, so this party scene is a writer's scene type. The lover's meet scene is the editor's scene type. I hope that's clear, not too confusing. The other couple of things that we haven't touched on in terms of scene types, and it's really important because we, we haven't talked a lot about it in the Story Grid universe yet, simply because we just haven't gotten to it yet. So we're getting to it now. This is the power dynamic at play in a scene and the point of conflict in a scene and how it relates to a character's objects of desire. Now, Leslie, why don't you take us through the power dynamic and then I'll sort of go through the the points of conflict and, and the relation to the objects of desire. Right. What's interesting about this scene is that you have, you have Bridget and Mark and that's really, that's when we really get to the conflict there's all kinds of bridging conflict, you know, with like, as you say, Uncle Jeffrey, the creep and, and other things, you know, the uh, going on the M6 and going way out of her way and therefore getting, getting to the party late. But when Bridget and Mark are face to face, neither one wants to be there neither one wants to be in the conversation particularly, right? But between them, Mark is the catch. And that's what everybody in the room believes, even though he's got, you know, bumblebee socks and, <laughs> and a very unfortunate sweater. He's got the big job, right? As you mentioned earlier, he's a top barrister. And Bridget, she's doing okay. 
but everyone in the room sees that if she bags Mark, she's punching above her weight, which is very rude and offensive to me. But that's what, that's the dynamic that is set up here. So if he rejects her, which he does, she's left looking awkward and embarrassed and vulnerable, not him. Yeah. Yeah. So between the two of them, he's the one with the power because she is being offered to him. Yeah. Everyone in the room is forcing her to go up to him and she doesn't want to be offered. He doesn't want her to be offered, but it's happening. So therefore he is in the position of accepting her or rejecting her. So it puts him in the power position. And when he ultimately does reject her, it's sort of a one, two punch in terms of the rejection. First, he walks away from her uh, to go to have the buffet <laughs> and leaves her by the bookshelf. But then he, he flat out refuses to take her number. I mean, that's a, like a, a, a very cold rejection. So what then is Bridget to do? She didn't want to go to this party. She didn't want to talk to this dude in the bumblebee socks and the sweater. And she doesn't particularly think much of him. So she's not crushed that Darcy in particular has rejected her. But she is crushed that she has been rejected because she's human, right? Rejection in any form, even from someone whose approval you never sought, is kind of tough to take, right? Especially in public, in front of your parents and all your parents' friends, the people who you have known you since you're a child, you know, that's, yeah, that's really hard to take. And to be fair, I want to mention that we're getting this from Bridget's point of view. And if we were seeing it from Mark's point of view, he might be feeling some similar things. So I, I want to say that, you know, it's not that Mark's a bad guy. It's just that we are, we're seeing this from Bridget's point of view. And again, this reflects the same sort of technique that um, Jane Austen used. Like we get in Pride and Prejudice, we get some view of Darcy when Elizabeth isn't in the room, but we don't know a lot about him. We don't really know what he thinks of her. We don't know that he's secretly in love with her until he proposes. In Bridget Jones's diary, Mark isn't in the story a whole lot until the ending payoff when all of a sudden, whoosh, the, the, ro- the romance starts and he says, well, I've always admired you from afar. I just keep asking you about books because I'm so nervous. I don't know what else to talk to you about and come to dinner with me. Right? Yes. So, so that's another thing that Helen Fielding has done to borrow from Jane Austen. Okie dokie. Uh, the point of conflict that we've kind of touched a little bit on this actually as we were going through. So what are the characters' objects of desire? Well, Pam and Una, Pam Jones, Bridget's mom, and Una Alkenberry, I just love that name. They want Mark and Bridget to date. They want to marry Bridget off, finally. She's in her 30s, heaven forbid. That's a service, really. She should be grateful. (laughs) That's right. That's right. They have her best interests at heart. And although Mark and Bridget are not particularly uh, keen on their approach. They're, they know social norms. They know that they don't want to cause a scene at Una's party and make everyone uncomfortable. So they're just kind of going with it. Um, the objects of desire, well, Bridget also wants a relationship. 
she really does. And Mark wants to be left alone because he's just come out of a, of a marriage. He's just been divorced when, from, his, uh, from his wife who has had an affair. So he's not really looking for a relationship right now. And I think if, if, if we look at the scene again from Mark's point of view, part of his rejection of her is kind of pr to protect his own heart because he doesn't want to be heartbroken again. And he thinks she's cute as a button, right? We, when we see Bridget through the other character's eyes, she's actually cute. She's beautiful. She's the only one who has a problem with her weight. She's the only one who thinks that she's unlovable or undateable. And this is, of course, what Daniel Cleaver catches on to. He sees this so he can play her like an instrument, right? Mm -hmm. But Bridget's friends don't think that way of her. Right. Mark doesn't think that way of her. And he knows, uh oh, I think she's pretty. I think she's cute. And she's, she's bumbling and silly, but in a really charming way, I have to steer clear her because I can't go through this again. Right? Right. Which is one of the things that the, one of the major conflicts, of course, in a love story is that we have this point of vulnerability or a secret that we're keeping from ourselves. And so that needs to be established early on too. And we've already got it here really strongly that she is behaving in a way that's not authentic and he is too. Which is what creates the point of conflict, right? When they, when they relax and be their authentic selves toward the end of the book, they're, they're off to the races. Okay, so that's a bit about scene types. Now, when we analyze a scene, again, if you look at the um, story grid analysis of Pride and Prejudice that Sean Coyne did, and I highly recommend it because it really shows the methodology in action, you'll notice that we have four story event questions that we look at, and we have the five commandments of storytelling that we look at. Now, the story event questions and the five commandments are, are mentioned in a lot of detail in a book called Story Grid 101 that you can download for free from the Story Grid website. Just go to the books page and you can see it there. Uh, the digital version is available as a free download. Um, but Leslie, let's just look at the story event questions now for a minute and you know what, what they are and why the heck we care about them. <laughs> well, Valerie, the story event questions help us come up with a workable summary that tells us what's important about what's happening in the scene, both in terms of you know, what the characters are doing, but also what do we need to know about the effect, like the result. So this story event is what we put in the spreadsheet. So when we are looking back over reviewing the novel, we can say, oh, that happened in this scene and this is what, you know, these are the details. So it's a kind of high level look at what's happening in the scene. The first question we look at is, what are the characters literally doing? That is, what are their micro on the ground actions? So this is very simple. What's happening on the surface? If you were to hire actors to dramatize the scene, what would they be doing? Of course, here we have multiple things going on. Bridget is recording her life and her goals in her diary. She has a conversation with her mother. 
But really the main thing that's happening is that Bridget is attending a party. So that immediately gives us things like that might show up at a party, some of the things that we've already talked about. So that's the first question. So the second question is, what is the essential tactic of the characters? That is, what macro behaviors are they employing that are linked to a universal human value? So that's a mouthful. But essential tactic is also connected to acting. And it's basically, what are they trying to get with what they're doing? And it's linked to what we call a universal human value. We used to call these life values, but we're trying to tidy up some of the terminology. And the universal human value is the condition or state that's changing, that's relative to our human needs. So if question one is about what the characters are literally doing, question two is about why they're doing it. What do they hope to accomplish? and with what they're doing. And we ask this because it helps us frame the conflict in the scene so that we can include that in our story event. Usually, of course, we're looking at the main character or the point of view character, but if the conflict is not clear to you, then start looking at the other characters too. So for this one, when I look at what Bridget is doing, she's resisting or she's avoiding her mother's interference in her life. Of course, she wants to avoid being awkward or being pushed into an unsatisfying romantic entanglement. And it's a subset of her larger goal, which in the very beginning is to adhere to her resolutions. A side note is that Bridget's mother and Una are setting up Bridget and Mark from the very beginning. The invitation months before mentions, <laughs> oh, Mark Darcy's going to be their top barrister recently divorced. Show up on time in your best dress. So <laughs> in this scene, they're kind of acting as helpers which is a convention of the love story. They're trying to push them together, even if it's not what's best for them. So the essential action is what's really going on here. And you could have multiple essential actions, right? You might need to list a few of them to figure out which one your scene is serving primarily. Like Bridget just wants to get this party over with. Right? She wants to avoid a confrontation with her mother you know, that's, it, it, that's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. It's often conveyed in subtext. And when you look at the relationships in your life, this is where, especially if you've got kids, this is where essential action just, you start to wonder how you never saw it before, right? <laughs> and I always give the example, if my daughter listens to this, she's going to kill me, but I always give the example. There was this one night she was doing the dishes without, having to be asked. Hmm. And I thought, well, so that was her literal action, right? Right. The dishes. But now I wasn't born yesterday. I'm not new here. So I look at this literal action and I think, huh, what does she want? (laughs) Right. And this was a few years ago. And you know, you're waiting for it as the parent, you're waiting for the ask to come. And sure enough, after the dishes were done and her room was tidy, the homework was done, the laundry was folded, she asked if she could go to a party. So her essential action was to butter me up. 
That's what was really going on there, right? So this is the literal and essential action at play. And when you can get it rocking and rolling in your scene, it's, it's a beautiful thing because your reader is not going to be able to articulate this in terms of literal and essential action. That's not their job. That's your job as the writer. It's my job as the writer. They buy the book. The, the unwritten contract between a writer and her reader is that as the writer, I'm going to write the best book that I can to entertain you or to educate you or to, you know, depending on the type of book that I'm writing. The reader's job is to be entertained. She shouldn't be aware of the craft behind it. You know, a lot of these, a lot of A-listers, they're so good at what they do that it looks effortless. And this is true in every field. They're just so good at their craft, at their field of, of speciality, that it, it looks effortless. It looks like they just woke up out of bed and just could pop it off. And that's never the case, right? So, so that's what we're doing here. We're trying to look at the literal and essential action of our characters in a scene so that we can then ask, okay, why does Bridget want to keep the peace? Why is Bridget not, you know, telling Mark off when he flat out rejects her? I mean, she does tease him with the gherkins and the many, many onions and that kind of stuff. But why doesn't she stand up and say, excuse me, how dare you? Because it all plays into Bridget's view of Bridget, right? So we talk, so that's the first two questions. We talk then in question three and four about the, the universal human values, what you, as you said, what we used to call the life values. Because we have to figure out what's going on here so that we can track it on our spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet is way more valuable than I ever realized when I first started with StoryGrid. So Leslie, how do you figure out which human life value to track on your spreadsheet? How do you know what's going on in the scene? And how do you know what to track on the spreadsheet? Right, because there's a, there's a lot of stuff changing in the average scene. You have different conditions, different states. And so I actually like to cast a wide net. What, you know, and Sean's question gives us a perfect way to manage that. What universal human values have changed for one or more of the characters in the scene? What has changed? So then we zero in on what's most important to the global story. And this should be the main value at stake that's raised by the turning point progressive complication. More on that soon. <laughs> Put a pin in that. So if we're looking at this scene, Bridget begins fairly determined to stick to her resolutions, right? By the end, she surrenders. She's eating, drinking, smoking, and obsessing about her boss. Oh, poor Bridget. So this is really important about her internal shape. Her, this is really important to her internal shift because she's really naive about how challenging it is to change one's behavior. You can't just snap your fingers and it's done. 
So other changes that are happening in the scene also, her mother is probably feeling pretty hopeful and by the end is fairly disappointed. And there's a lot of other things like that. But what about the love story, the global story? So when Mark is first mentioned, he's kind of a loser. He's another strangely dressed opera freak with bushy hair burgeoning from a side part. That's what she thinks of when she thinks of Mark Darcy. But when he walks away from her at the party with everyone looking, she hates him. I mean, hate is a big spectrum, of course, but she's really upset. So he goes from being kind of a loser to being an object of hate. And so what I would talk about this in the spreadsheet, I would talk about uninterested, because she's not interested in him at all in the beginning, to hate. So that's a negative progression. Well, you could say um, indifferent to hate. Sure. There's, 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 I just want to stop for one second here and chat about this because this comes up all the time. It comes up in our certification trainings for sure is how do you know which word to choose when you're doing the value uh, changes, right? Because we've had instances where uh, like we will do, especially in, our, like I said, the certification training, Sean will give us an unseen scene and we have to analyze it and then we go through it as a group. And Sean will give us his take on it. And if there's 60 people in the room, you got 60 different <laughs> interpretations or 60 different sets of words. Like Leslie said, uninterested to hate. I said indifferent to hate. And the question always becomes, yeah, but which is it? Which is the right answer? Well, they're both right. And it's fine. And I think, I think if, if writers spend their time agonizing over exactly which word to put there, it's a bit of a waste of time, in the, especially in the drafting phase. What you want to do is make sure you can see a clear shift. We can see a clear shift in Bridget, right? She's, she doesn't really care much for him in the beginning. And by the end, she is not at all impressed. So whatever words you choose to articulate that shift is kind of up to you. The point, especially in the drafting phase, is that there is a shift. Right. And the reason we articulate it for the spreadsheet is to make sure that it's moving the global value. So it's affecting the big story. And it's a little subjective. That's the, you know, that's the point, I think. But we can all kind of agree on the area. This ends positive or this begins positive and ends negative. And we can see that we can look, we can describe it differently, but we're getting at the same point. Exactly. So then we take all three answers to those questions and we bring them together in the story event. And again, this will be a little bit subjective. So I will focus on the things that feel really important to me. Valerie would focus on different things probably. So if you didn't get the same answer that we did when we analyzed scenes on the podcast, don't worry about it. Just think about what you need to know 
so you can identify what's important in the scene. So I say Bridget attends the turkey curry buffet where she comes to hate Darcy when he abandons her after they're pushed into conversation. So I've got the conflict, I've got the change, and I've got kind of the literal action going on in there. And chances are, whatever answer I come up with is going to be in the same ballpark as what you've come up with. And right. that's, that's the goal here. Okie doke. So after the four scene analysis questions, we jump right into the five commandments of storytelling. Now the five commandments, when you first start working on them, they're a great way to enter the story grid method. It's how I entered the story grid method. And I highly recommend it to everyone that I meet because it's a real tangible, quick way to see a huge improvement in your writing. Just getting those five commandments working at the scene level. Over time, as you start to do this, the five commandments will just, they'll just happen because you'll get so good at it that you'll automatically be adding them in. It's like when we first started to learn how to write, we agonized over forming each letter. Now we don't do that anymore. We don't have to think about how to spell words. We just write. It's the same kind of thing. So you'll probably start out really figuring out where the five commandments are in a scene, but the more you do, the better you'll get and it'll become second nature. So in uh, this scene in Bridget Jones's diary, the inciting incident is of course, when Bridget arrives at the Alconberry's home for New Year's day, turkey curry buffet. Um, the progressive complications, there's a whole bunch of them. I'm gonna come back to those because I wanna spend time talking about those. The turning point progressive complication is when Mark suddenly bolts for the buffet, leaving Bridget alone by the bookshelf with everyone staring. Now, does Bridget take Mark's rejection in stride, this is the crisis, and retain some dignity, or does she allow it to upset her? Bridget takes it in stride and teases Mark about the gherkins. That's her, the climactic action, and the resolution is that Bridget wants nothing to do about with uh, Mark Darcy. Now, let me go back to the progressive complications. If you've read the story grid, what good editors know. The, the second commandment of the five commandments is progressive complications. And Sean talks about the turning point as being the little brother or the little buddy of, uh, of the progressive complications. Well, the turning point as of late has been given um, a huge promotion <laughs> in the story grid world. It's uh, now called the fear, P-H-E-R-E, and it's like the big kahuna. And instinctively, Sean kind of knew this because he, of all of the commandments, that's the one he articulated on the spreadsheet. That's the one he knew needed to be tracked because the, the turning point is where the value shifts. The, the, all that we were just talking about uh, with, with respect to Bridget and her feelings toward Mark, that was the shift and it happened because of the turning point. So because the turning point got such a promotion, we kind of stopped talking about the progression, progressive complications a little bit, um, not for any reason, just because we were so busy explaining the turning point. And I think it's time that we talk about progressive complications a little bit more now, because this is where the stakes start to increase. And writers who get the turning point in place, they can do an inciting incident and a turning point and a crisis and a climax and a resolution, their scene still feels a little bit flat and it's because nothing is, there's no progressive complications. Now, if, if your scene is super short, like you can have a 500 word scene or a 250 word scene, you know, depending on what you're writing, 
then you might not have any progressive complications. This scene in Bridget Jones's diary is not particularly long. I, it's, it's maybe 1500 words, I didn't count them, but it's not a real long scene. It might only be a thousand words. And just on one read through, I have six progressive complications, but Leslie mentioned one earlier in the episode that I forgot to write down, which is Bridget uh, taking the wrong road, the, the M6 instead of the M1. So that's a progressive complications. It means she arrives late, right? Uh, the other ones I have listed here, um, Uncle Jeffrey asks about her love life. That's the pre progressive complication. Now, how does that escalate the stakes of the scene? Well, it makes Bridget feel even more uncomfortable. She didn't want to go. She's hungover, which is a complication. Another one that I didn't write down. So we're up to, to eight now <laughs> um, in a very, very short scene. Um, so she, you know, she doesn't want to be there in the first place. She's hungover. She's not feeling well. And now this makes her feel even worse. Pam Jones has been talking about Mark Darcy for weeks. How does that escalate the stakes? Bridget is sick of Mark before she even gets there. Una and Pam are obvious in their matchmaking. This raises the stakes because it embarrasses both Mark and Bridget. Uh, Mark is wearing an ugly diamond pattern sweater. It raises the stakes because it makes him look old and out of touch, which makes him even less appealing than he was before. Bridget lies about the book she's reading. It's so funny. It raises the stakes because Mark has read it. <laughs> and when he begins discussing it, Bridget's there with egg on her face. She's got to try and change the conversation really quickly. She doesn't have a reply. Uh, and another one is Bridget fumbles through the conversation and she makes this, it makes the whole situation even worse. So we go from having two people who, you know, aren't really looking, they know they're going to be introduced to one another. They know their parents well enough for this. It, they could have been introduced, had a polite word or two, and it would have been over with. But because of all these other things, Bridget's hungover, she arrives late and she's flustered. Uh, she gets caught in a bit of a lie. It, you can see it spiraling and it keeps going and it ramps up the stakes until you hit that turning point, which is the rejection of Bridget that happens, like I said, in a kind of a one-two punch. The first one being when Mark leaves her alone at the bookshelf. He goes to, uh, to have the buffet. He goes to have dinner. And the second one is when, um, I think it's Una says, you must take Bridget's phone number so you can connect when you're back in London. And he says, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> so these progressive complications are really important. So if your story, your scene, your sequence, your act, whatever unit of story you're dealing with here, but if you are, since we're talking about scenes today, I'll focus on that. If your scene is feeling flat and yet you can articulate your inciting incident, your turning point, your crisis, climax, and resolution, really have a good look at your progressive complications. How many do you have and how are they raising the stakes in the scene? Leslie, did you have anything to add on that? No, no it, you covered it beautifully. <laughs> Progressive complications should not be ignored. And as you say, if you've done the, ana the initial analysis and the scene's still not quite working, the progressive complications are the place to turn next. So those are the, the bones of the story. We know 
we have an idea of what scene type it is and why this scene type is being used. We've identified the story event and we've identified the five commandments. So when you're analyzing a scene from your masterwork or just your favorite novel or just the novel you happen to be reading, that is kind of the three top areas that you, you look at to, to figure out how this, what makes this thing tick. Then you wanna go and look at other things in the scene. You might wanna look at, for example, how the author is handling description, how they're handling dialogue and so on and so forth. And I think there's a couple of great things that this scene is highlighting for us and lessons that we can really learn. Uh, Leslie, do you want to go first? You don't, or do you want me to go first on this one? I can go first. Okay. Um, yeah. So this is a picture perfect scene when it comes to the fundamentals. We've kind of scratched the surface here. There are lots more things we could be looking at, but, but I want you, to, I want to, say from the inciting incident Bridget wants to avoid the meddling of her mother and being awkward and feeling awkward and every step along the way pushes her into that until she has to confront she can no longer avoid she has to confront the awkwardness it's really beautiful and she doesn't see that it's her own stuff that is getting in the way and so we do have a really lovely scene it does a lot for the global genre which is really important we talked about some of the conventions that this scene covers and it's really wonderful so i'll talk about some of that in the show notes so be sure to check out those specifics and what I really want to say about this story, Valerie, is that every time I read this book, I find new aspects to appreciate. As I said, I don't love, a, I don't read, that is, a lot of love stories. But Fielding is solving the same problems that every writer faces when they want to write a novel. And these are the things that are important, whether it's your very first novel or your 50th. And so looking at stories that aren't necessarily your cup of tea is really useful when they have the craft nailed down as much as Fielding does here. In fact, it's sometimes better because you're not distracted with the stuff that you're really into. Um, the narrative device, of course, in this story I have written a lot about mm. and in this scene, it's very clearly on display. Fielding moves very deftly between the epistolary elements, that is the diary. She slides right into the dramatic scene, part of the scene, and you hardly even notice it. And as I mentioned, this is not Jane Austen. We don't have highbrow literature here. And it would be very easy to miss how well Fielding is taking us from the anticipation and then the reflection after the events from those points into the actual scene where the characters are walking and talking and doing what they do. Establishing facts we need, but not overdoing it. Because the challenge presented by a story like this, a love story, where you need, where the worldview 
is so important to it, right? This is what is keeping her stuck, is her own view of herself and the world. We need that reflection. We need to see her changing her mind over time. But if we spend too much time in Bridget's head, it's not going to work. It's going to be really, really boring. So when we put those thoughts on paper, literally and figuratively, it creates a different dynamic. And the purpose of it allows us to think of the words, like Valerie was talking about earlier, the details. What do we include in this scene? Oh, she's writing her diary. What would she include? She would be very focused on herself, not Mark's experience. She would be very focused on the metrics of her resolution. And so it's done really, really beautifully. Epistolary form is not easy to pull off. Oh, no. It's, it can be seen as sort of a throwaway or an old form because it was quite popular in Jane Austen's day or, you know, uh, even, even the 19th century, right. the late 19th century. But today, there's not a huge amount of epistolary. And it's, it's sort of, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, she's just writing a diary. But if you, if you do what Leslie's suggesting here and really have a look as to how Fielding is starting an entry like a diary, like not all the words in the sentence are there, right? Prepositions are missing, things like that. And in this scene, by sentence five, the first five sentences are, are a transition from the sort of stream of consciousness thinking of Bridget to prose that we can comfortably read. Because if it was all this type of stuff where prepositions are missing and words are missing and the sort of staccato thoughts that Bridget is having, we wouldn't be able to read it. It would be too hard to read. Mm-hmm. So in five sentences, she flows into this, this narrative that you can read very quickly. And when you come across prose that almost seems to read itself, <laughs> That is craft, man. That is real craft. And Una Alkenberry and Pam Jones are hilarious. And comedy's not easy. So I just, uh, yeah, I like you, Leslie, it's not a book that I kept reading over and over. And when Sean first chose it, I thought, oh, yeah, well, it's kind of a nice story, but I wonder why he picked that one. And then you appreciate what Helen Fielding is doing. I mean, her fans are are diehard and she's earned it, in my opinion. Okay, so for me, what this scene is a great example of is how to pay tribute to another writer. On the Unpodcast, um, Leslie, you and I talked a bit about, quite a bit about where story ideas come from. Mm-hmm. And one of the way, one of the places that we get get story ideas is from reading other people's works. Like Pride and Prejudice, I mean, how many contemporary versions of Pride and Prejudice are out there? A zillion, right? In yeah. all different genres. Uh, Dracula's another one, Frankenstein's another one. So all these classics, these masterworks, there's reimaginings of them all the time. And 
Bridget Jones's diary is a reimagining, a contemporary reimagining of Pride and Prejudice. Now, part of what Fielding does is make it very clear that that's what she's doing. Mm -hmm. It's part of the joke, right? So she's got to set that up and make it really clear for her reader right out of the gate. This is what you're in for. And your first chapter is really important. I mean, we, I, I think, actually, that's a really good idea, Leslie, for another season. We should just look at the first chapters of books and see what's in them. Yeah. It's a great exercise. This happens to be the first scene of Bridget Jones's diary. So Fielding has really got to make us aware of what kind of story she's telling us. How, how are we going to feel? Because, okay, may, uh, you know, full disclosure here. I saw the movie before I read the book and I didn't hear, I didn't know anything about the book. Um, at the time it was when it was out in the theaters, right? A long time ago. Uh, my, my group of girlfriends were all going to see this movie and you know, FOMO, I had to go. I couldn't be left out. I just tagged along with them. And I came out and I went, Oh my God, that's a total ripoff of, Pride, of Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. And I was like, all oh, hoity-toity because I was an English major. <laughs> Feeling very superior, thank you very much. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I remember my friend Victoria looked at me and went, that's the point, Valerie. <laughs> like, oh. So then I went back and read the book. I'm like, oh, I get it now. So I didn't get the joke of Bridget Jones's diary because I hadn't read the book. Mm -hmm. When you read the book, this opening chapter lets the reader in on the joke. Right. And it's done so well. So I just made a couple of, well, there's, there's a big list. I'll go through them as quickly as I 20. can. <laughs> Here's how Helen Fielding tips you off that this is a tongue-in-cheek contemporary version of Pride and Prejudice. And she does it so smoothly, unless you sit down and look for these things, you don't even notice them. Again, this is her craft coming through, right? So a couple of them we've already mentioned. For example, the turkey curry buffet is reminiscent of the Never Netherfield Ball, and the lovers meet in a social context in both books, right? Which makes this rebuke even more powerful. Right. Um, th there is a key difference in, in Bridget Jones's diary. Darcy is out of the book for the most part until the ending payoff. He, he pops up, obviously he's in chapter one. He pops up a little bit in the middle build, but that love story doesn't really kick in until the ending payoff. Whereas in Austin's book, uh, he's, he's there right from the beginning. In Bridget Jones's diary, uh, Mark asks Bridget, you know, have you read any good books lately? And there's a whole conversation about books. Why? It's because Elizabeth and Darcy talk a lot about books in Pride and Prejudice, and it's in chapter eight of Austin's book. Um, Elizabeth chooses to read a book over play cards, and Darcy says that in addition to the skills a woman of the day should possess, she, quote, must yet add something more substantial in the improvement of her mind by extensive reading. <laughs> and Bridget, of course, doesn't read. <laughs> It's wonderful, right? You know, you've got Elizabeth Bennett and you've got Bridget Jones. It's just hilarious. Uh, other sort of more superficial types of um, references, obviously the name, Mr. Darcy, Mark Darcy, and she references him, Helen Fielding references him as Mr. Darcy in this first scene. Mm -hmm. uh, the standing alone part 
at the turkey curry buffet. And of course we see Darcy at the Netherfield ball standing alone because he's too good to socialize. Um, they, they both brush Bridget and Elizabeth off at the, at the social event. Pam Jones is a, a sort of a cross between Mrs. Bennett and Lydia. Yes. Oh, good eye. Yeah. <laughs> Bridget's relationship with her father is very much like Elizabeth's relationship with her father. Uh, Fielding actually mimics Austin's language. She talks about throwing Bridget into Mark's path. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Bennett says the same thing. She says that Jane's relationship with Bingley will throw her, all, her other daughters into the path of other rich men. Uh, Mark's public rebuke uh, and Darcy's public rebuke, of course. Um, did I say that right? Public rebuke? <laughs> um, uh, so Darcy won't dance with her, right? Because she's been slighted by other men. Um, Bridget's response to that is very similar to Elizabeth's response to that. They both tease them. Now, a key difference here, and I think this is where a lot of writers miss it in contemporary literature because the whole romance uh, genre has come from Pride and Prejudice, right? Mm-hmm. I, I love a good romance, I'll admit. Um, but well, uh, what a lot of writers miss here is that in Pride and Prejudice, first of all, the stakes are enormous. They are enormous. And that's just not the case in most contemporary uh, modern romances. Right. The other thing is that Elizabeth Bennet has self-respect and a feeling of self-worth. That's why she turns Darcy down when he proposes. He says, you know, against my better judgment or something like that. And she's like, I beg your pardon. Kind of backwards compliment compliment is that. (laughs) Right. We're equal. You're a gentleman. I'm a gentleman's daughter. In my eyes, we're equal. You you won't hear that from Bridget Jones. Yeah. In fact, immediately after the next journal entry, it's sort of like later that same day, after she talks about the turkey curry buffet, she's saying, basically, why am I unlovable? Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so this is a key difference here. Um, she doesn't feel worthy. I mean, this is what Daniel sees, right? He's able to, to grab it. Yeah. Okay. So let's wind up this episode the same way we used to wind up the roundtable episodes with our key takeaways. Leslie. Well, Valerie, we know the value of studying masterworks, but I find that some writers are still reluctant. I'm not sure if they see it as a waste of time, uh, but a sculptor who doesn't study great sculpture or a lawyer who doesn't read legal cases and articles, that doesn't, that does not compute. So I want everybody to really embrace this and to read multiple times because the first time you read it, you're getting a high level view. It's kind of like the first time you write the first draft of your story that you write. You're just getting a handle on the story and there's so many more levels and layers to add. So I feel a little bit, like a broken record, but I'm going to keep saying, if you don't have a masterwork for your current work in progress, find one right away. And if you haven't read your masterwork multiple times, analyzed it from different angles, start doing that and, and start with small steps, right? Analyze 
one scene a day to identify what's literally happening and the essential tactic. And then in your next pass, choose another angle. It takes time, but it is so worth it. It will pay dividends in the current book you're writing and in all the ones that follow. My key takeaway for this scene is the importance of the first scene in your book and how it sets up all the reader expectations and everything that the reader um, will see as the novel goes along. It's really well done. And sometimes it's, it's difficult to appreciate just how good the first chapter is until you finish reading the book and you come back and read the first chapter again and you see how many setups are there and you see how well the author has let you know what you're in for. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.